we see in all American institutions, there is racial inequity. That's a fact. The question is, why? So this isn't about feelings, who hates whom and whom hates what. It's about critical, okay? Why is it with COVID-19 we see African-Americans disproportionately impact? We know due to lack of health care. But what people like to think is, no, it's black behavior. So critical race theory provides a structural critique. Now, this is where in a country we're taught about individualisms, we know on our side it's about the structure. So we're speaking two different languages. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We got a really special show this week. We're talking to the new director of African-American studies at the University of Florida, David Canton. He's also a sports guy. He teaches sports classes. So in addition to talking sports and politics with David Canton, we're going to talk to him about what it's going to be like to head the African-American studies program at the state university in the in the whole entire state of Florida. I mean, he's teaching this. He's heading up this program at the University of Florida at a moment when the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, is signing this idiotic legislation to outlaw and basically snitch upon anybody who's teaching what they're describing as critical race theory, even though they don't even know what critical race theory is or what it means. But we want to talk to David Cannon about what that's going to look like at the University of Florida to be teaching in the presence of these kinds of attacks, in the context of these kinds of attacks, and what is his response going to be? What role does he have and what role does his department have as a force needed to stand up to the hysteria, to the racist hysteria? Let me put a fine point on it. So we're going to talk to David Cannon and figure that out. Also, I got some choice words about the NFL and race norming. I got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more. But first, David Kim. What's it like being the director of the African-American Studies program at a school like the University of Florida? And that's a great question. Um, Obviously, uh, it's a research one known and when a sports show obviously known for the Southeastern Conference, great football program, won a couple of national championships in basketball, but people don't realize University of Florida is the number six nationally ranked public university. I think oftentimes up there with Michigan, UCLA, University of Virginia. So obviously coming in here, trying to build a department and give a national stature is one of my uh, important positions, in spite of the fact that we have a state that is now being critical of critical race theory on a K-12 level not to be taught. But nevertheless, we see the value in this information. Unfortunately, it took this long. Uh, the program's been around 50 years. We're finally, uh, finally committed to uh, creating a department, and we see it's more important now than ever that this type of information is, is shared, researched, uh, put out there, and not just for African-American students. I think that's one of the biggest myths like the civil rights movement just helped black people. You know, there's this myth that exists, affirmative action just helped black people, and rather than helping all citizens in this country. And that's the key to what I'm doing in this department for our majors, for our minors, for our colleagues, that really if you want to uh, get to the ideals of what's put forth on the Constitution, it comes through a critical examination, history, sociology, the work that you do in race and sports, 
to get us to a point where it's asking critical questions. Why do some people don't have good broadband, access to good health care, access to affordable housing? Those are human issues. Now, I got to ask you, David, you, you're, I know this is a sports show, but you know your governor, Ron DeSantis, just signed this sweeping legislation against stopping critical race theory in schools, which is so ridiculous for so many reasons. Um, Correct. Not the least of which is that it's not taught in K through 12. I mean, this is graduate level seminar uh, stuff, you know, critical race, right. just using critical race theory as this kind of umbrella to basically say black scholars and anti-racism. Um, so, but obviously they're, they're painting people who do the work that you do as a target. Correct. Right. What do you have any sort of battle plan going back to the University of Florida for how you're going to deal with this mood in the state? That's a great statement. I think I'm going to go ahead and start working on a statement and get colleagues to join in and just give it simple example. I mean, it's real easy, right? Uh, I read somewhere it said about we want history with truth and objectives and facts. Slavery occurred. There's racism. We see, in our, we see in all American institutions there is racial inequity. That's a fact. The question is why. So this isn't about feelings, who hates whom and whom hates what. It's about critical, okay? Why is it with COVID-19 we see African Americans disproportionately impact? We know due to lack of health care. But what people like to think is, no, it's black behavior. So critical race theory provides a structural critique. Now, this is where in a country we're taught about individualisms, we know on our side it's about the structure. So we're speaking two different languages. I'm speaking a language of structure, systems. It's not about feelings, not about individuals. While the other team is speaking about individuals and personal responsibility, and that's the problem. You see what I mean? So in other words, two different languages, okay, and that people in their feelings about being a racist has nothing to do with individuals. It's how these systems mm-hmm. have operated and continue to operate. But from critical race theory, you identify the issue, structure, how do you, you organize, elect officials, create policies, and it's the key point here, that benefits numerically more white people. Affirmative action, white women among beneficiaries. Ob- Obamacare, more white people benefit. New Deal policies. So critical race theory, you learn class through race, which is overlooked in these discussions. So if most people don't go to college and you go through K-12 with nothing but a massive content dump, you don't develop these critical skills to understand why there's dirty water in Flint, why your Internet just went out, why the 1% get richer, why we have sexual assault and people don't know what's going on. You don't have the analytical tools, but this has been turned into a political position because there are no policies the Republican Party, so we'll put out CRT and hold on till 2022 and then have this spread throughout the country, and all the people that make the statements about it are totally incorrect. Yeah. No, that, 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 there's, there's a mass battle in this country right now, a political battle where ignorance is an openly used proud tool of one side. So, right. not, I mean, and that's to me what's frustrating about politics in this country is that you don't debate it on its own terms. Like, instead you debate the boogeyman that's created out of their own terms. And that's always going to be a losing debate. It's like, um, 
It's like if I said to you, can I ask you a yes or no question and you have to answer the truth and you say, sure. And I say, do your parents know you're a criminal? And it's like, uh, but I'm not a criminal, but you're just giving me these two <laughs> answers where I have to. Admit. Right. That, that's like, so, so, so like critical race theory. I have a question for you. When it's taught in kindergarten, does it teach white people to hate each other or just hate themselves? And you're like, wait a minute. A, it's not, it's like you don't know which part of that sentence to correct first. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It just provides kids with, like you said, it says, and kids are, are curious. Okay, if America says X, why do I see homeless people? If America says Y, why do uh, my parents don't have money, to, uh, teachers buying books in school? Critical race theory, right? If If we say Z, why is there a, a contradiction? Kids pick that up earlier than we like to admit. So once they start early on this path of critical inquiry, now you're constantly asking questions, you're holding politicians accountable, you're holding corporations accountable, and to, and to be honest, everybody benefits from that. That's what it's all about. So that's how I'm trying to frame the argument, that it's about improve. It's not hate, that's personal, that's feelings. I don't know anybody. Right? It's about these policies. We have to let people understand it's not about that. It's about, imp it's about improving the nation, improving the world by having critical ideas, curiosity. And that's what it's all about. So I'm going to work on hopefully a statement to start putting something together as, simplistic, as simplistically as I can. You said that for years. You know, how do scholars relate to the public? Yes. So avoiding, because people hear theory, you're going to hear Marxism, and I'm going to put in simple language that everybody can understand, or as my Joe Madison, our colleague says, put it where the goats can get it. Yeah. And I think coming from you at the most prominent state school in the state of Florida, head of African American studies, I mean, David, that could have serious weight on a national level if you put together the right kind of statement. Because if Florida is ground zero, or pardon my expression, the bullshit, and <laughs> you're able to not just stand up against the bullshit, but provide coherence for a way out of the bullshit that you can get your colleagues to sign on, that could be an incredibly powerful tool for people who are dealing with this in small towns all around the country. You probably heard Washaw County in Nevada, the people are saying we need to have teachers have cameras on them the way cops have cameras so we can see if they're teaching critical race theory. I mean, this is insane. Wow. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, I mean, this, is, this, is, this to me is all about after the murder of George Floyd, you have the largest demonstrations in the history of the United States. And this, we are now living firmly in the age of the backlash to those demonstrations. Maybe not the age, Correct. but the month, in the year, whatever you want to call it. And it is a white panic against the fact that questions of inequity, inequity, fighting for equity, were pushed forward as part of these demonstrations that took place after George Floyd's murder. So this is the reaction to that. And the, the reaction is irrational. It is unhinged. It is without basis in material reality. And so anything you can do to provide clarity to this question with your incredible post, David, because you and I haven't talked since you've gotten this, this incredible post. I mean, this, I mean, you're, you're a long way from Connecticut College, sir. And Correct. You're right. 
you know, this this is with great power comes great responsibility. You're 100% correct. So definitely, once I get on this plane, I'm going to start working on it, reach out to some colleagues and, uh, you know, put, like you said, craft the, the great, the perfect, the perfect statement. And as academics, def- definitely what we can do, you know, I wordsmith it, go back and forth and put out a counter argument, hopefully gets, gets the same momentum, read this uh, post, and then everybody else boilerplate it, like that's what they do for the anti-critical uh, race theory, boilerplate it, now you have a conversation with academics who can provide teachers the intellectual tools, because I know it's intimidating, right? When, when the parents are fired, everybody's yelling and screaming, and you, you know you want to say it, your, your belly starts moving, but you don't have the exact tools or you're nervous, and that's when we come in working together. Here's the language. This is how it's really it's a game. Here's the language. Here's the information. This is what we're doing. You're right, and let's move forward. And and, and we know as schools start up in the fall, you are, you already know it's going to be all over the news all this next uh, academic year. It's going to be very interesting. I mean, it, it stands to reason that you're going to have students in, in your classes in, in the department you're overseeing who are going to be bringing tape recorders to class, who are going to be trying to leak things to right-wing media, who are going to try to create an atmosphere of fear and and, uh, and division in the room itself. Um, I mean, do, do, you, do you feel like you've got a plan to, to take all this on? Because, I mean, you, you're just going to be a zero of a lot of tension. Correct. So obviously, you know, conversations will start you know, in the, when we have go back in August, you know, like from the deans to program chairs, directors, particularly if you're untenured faculty, I mean, they're real, particularly untenured faculty, women of color, you know, who even in a non, a year we don't critique CRT, there's always this uh, presence in the classroom, right? Racism, sexism. So we can imagine if I'm untenured, my first job at these institutions where there's a state attack on the K through 12, you have a senior coming in, first year student, fired up, ready to go. Uh, those students are probably much engaged with their parents in these conversations. They're in the classroom just waiting, just have, they're fired up waiting to, to give this critique. So that's going to be very interesting. So we'll have a conversation. If these uh, incidents occur, please report to the director. We go to the dean and we start, we, don't, we fight, the, fight the battle or figure it out what can work because you can't be a great instructor or educator if you feel like there's a big you know, weight on your neck you know, of somebody going to turn you in, almost like, you know, in, in totalitarian countries, mm-hmm. China, Russia, you know, the same countries we critique, you're developing the same type of systems controlling information right in front of your eyes. And that's being overlooked. Wow. I'd say, I'll tell you, um, the enormity of your task is, is, is intimidating for from my perspective, but there's few people I would trust more with it than David Canton. So um, I'm also very encouraged and feel hopeful about what you're going to do. So um, God bless, sir. Um, you know, I'd be remiss because we, you know, we are the sports and politics show. I, I got to ask you, how, what role does sports play in a modern African-American studies program, especially at a oh. school like the University of Florida? Well, we are in the process of, of expanding. Uh, have, we have expanding, adding some new faculty to the program, and race and sports is an area that we're definitely looking at. I mean, obviously, we know that, you know, as, my, as a colleague of mine at University, uh, University of California, Los Angeles, says that 
music or entertainment or sports is a natural resource that people of African descent have put in this country for years mm-hmm. as athletes, as entertainers, but they don't control the means of production. So developing race and sports where African Americans contribution, but how do you control the economic side? Almost like the LeBron James model. This is why folks hate Rich Rich Paul. They didn't go to college, right? And that you have African Americans trying to control as best they can the natural resource that's LeBron playing basketball and maximizing it and then also sharing with people in Akron, not just black students, but poor white students in Akron benefit from that school. So we see race and sports is very important and of course race sports in class and you know, I love to get into the conversation about the upcoming college baseball draft with Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter, the two outstanding pitchers for Vanderbilt the Vanderbilt Commodores baseball team. So why critical race theory is this? There's an essay on ESPN about the two pitchers. Why they're so different. You know what that means. One is black, one is white. Kumar has a grandparents from India. Kumar's an Indian first name. His father's African American. And then the, the statement argues what they share in common, willingness to work, be smart, and pursue perfection. Now, these are values that can't be quantified. See, this is the problem. What they do share in common is what? They're both upper middle class, right? They're both parents play professional sports, which provided them the resources to participate in a sport that's very expensive. This is why critical race theory is important. Now we can explain why there's a lack of African Americans in Major League Baseball. It's because of the resources. Baseball is extremely expensive, and it takes for many players a long time to get to the Major League level. That's right. That's right. So if you had to put your head around um, why it is Major League Baseball has drained itself of black American talent over the course of your life and over the course of my life. What's the number one thing you put your finger on? Well, I did an essay a few years ago. I looked, well, I gave three, to be honest with you. Deindustrialization, mass incarceration are two major structural issues that impacted African Americans in baseball. I grew up in the Bronx in the, in the early, in the late seventies, eighties. Baseball was my number one sport. My dad was from St. Thomas, where baseball was their number one sport. My grandfather umpired a game with Roberto Clemente in Puerto Rico. My dad was friends with Eldrod Hendricks. So I grew up, I was all baseball every day. But we see in 1981, you you had about 15%. But what happened in the cities? Deindustrialization. All those working class jobs disappeared. And as you know, Dave, Little League Baseball were by working class dads who had nine-to-five working-class jobs that can go at night to practice twice a week and do the weekends. Once those jobs got decimated, left with service jobs, where you have hours that are around the clock, underpaid, no benefits, and then there's no resources to maintain the Little League baseball in the Bronx. We also know because of college basketball and football how they took off in 80 with Bird and Magic, and that baseball itself has the oldest fan base, we say tradition, i.e. white dudes, right? That's tradition, right? White guys in New Balance and jean shorts, right? Now we finally see in baseball adapting the bat flip from my Dominican brothers and the Latino brothers. That now they know if we need to be, if we want to stay relevant, we have to change the traditions. 
So deindustrialization, of course, mass incarceration. If you go to the prisons today, I bet you many of them were 13, 14, 15, my age, going to jail for weed, fake charges. I bet you 30% of them played baseball. Once they left, right, there's no vacuum. Yes, there were some others that played softball. Yes, there are some that played baseball, no doubt. But in terms of the structure in the communities, right, that population's out of the way. And now you see the shift more towards basketball, college football, and baseball, as you noted so well in your work. We go to Dominican Republic. It was a cheap supply of labor. The RBI camp in this country was it run the RBI sponsored by Major League Baseball, as you know, probably still don't put in enough resources because to make two good pro players, you need 1,000 players. It's a funnel system. And the Major League Baseball is not going to put the billions or the millions to develop more black players when you go to the Dominican Republic and put in less money, relatively less. And we also know that everybody in DR plays baseball. While this country, black talent is back talent football and basketball, so you make a, a cost-benefit analysis. I'm going the quickest way to get paid. I'll give you one final point. Hunter Green, the number one pick out of high school three years ago, he's finally in double-A at 21. No one knows who this guy is. That's the point. You know, he's finally in double-A. Might get called up this year. Might get called up. So if I'm a young guy, regardless of class, most Division One athletes are middle class now. What's the quickest way to increasing wealth and income? Football and basketball. Class allows Kumar Rocker to stay and play college baseball and Jack Leiter. They have resources. They can take an extra year in college and take a history class. But if your income isn't, you know, if you need the resources, who has time for that? And just the straight illogic of what? Playing, playing college ball for free. You know, it's, it's these economic capitalist questions that we're seeing. And this is what, again, critical race theory in sports allows me to see how class helps shape those two gentlemen's uh, route to Major League Baseball rather than just values. They're just hard workers. As you know, dishwashers work hard, but they're broke. Most athletes work hard, but, you know, most don't make it. So it's a more complicated issue rather than simplistically values and hard work. Those you can't measure, but you can measure them in terms of resources. Is there any connection between what we're talking about um, and an analysis about the current state of the game in 2021 where people think it's too boring, too many strikeouts, too obsessed by analytics, too home run or bust every time someone goes up to the plate. Um, is there a connection between one and the other? There's no doubt about it, right? We see that, again, baseball's, the average age of a baseball fan is 60, I believe. It's one of the oldest. You know, so now how do we with millennials – who will have a different type of, of attention span with social media, ESPN, who's contributed to this, right? Everybody wants to highlight. So maybe the higher-ups say, okay, what can we do, right? Home runs draw attention. Remember Sammy Sosa and uh, Mark McGuire in 98. Mm -hmm. Maybe strikeouts, right? These pitchers, Kumar Rock is 6'5", 245. The power pitcher, the big legs, Tom Seaver, J.R. Richards and them, right? They're exciting. Who doesn't want to see 100 mile an hour in a numbers-obsessed country? 100.4 miles an hour, exit velocity speed. How can we introduce some sort of gimmicks? That's why they're allowing the bat flip. Some sort of excitement or entertainment 
to get younger people engaged in the sport. Fernando Tatis Jr., Vlad Guerrero Jr., right? Excitement, bat flips. They do the bat flips with Korean baseball. So those things, stealing bases when you're up 15 runs, or the guy that's, uh, who's with the White Sox, he hit the pitch on a 3-0 and and his team was up 15 runs. All that is yeah. up for questioning now because it's about capital. Throw those rules out. I want to be entertained. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. Yeah, you threw down with the your mean Mercedes reference, um, and and all the ridiculousness about the unwritten rules of baseball. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like unwritten rules of baseball. It's like get with the times and try to give people a product that they actually want to see. And honestly, you know. One of the unwritten rules of baseball also used to be you tried to steal bases and put the ball in play and, you know, right. exciting, energetic, athletic contest. And, you know, so the very people who talk about tradition are the very people who aren't trying to change the game from what it's become, which is kind of unrecognizable with the major shifts mm. of where everybody's fielding. I mean, I, I would outlaw the shift tomorrow. That's just me. But it's <laughs> right. just it's too much, man. It's like, give me the game of my youth, please. Um, I hear you. It's like watching softball with the big home runs. <laughs> yeah, like I, I was born and raised a Mets fan. I can name more players on the 86 Mets than I can name on the 2021 Mets, and it's not even close. And that's a problem. Mm, that's a real mm-hmm. problem. Imagine if you applied that to basketball and we're like, oh, I can name more players on the 86 Utah Jazz than I can on the 2021 Utah <laughs> Jazz. would be like, what? What's the matter with you? It's crazy. Right, right. That, that's right. Well, base, baseball has some – so, like I said, baseball is they constantly trying to figure out a year to pitch, a year to bat. They just cannot – maybe just play the game. Like you said, just play. Let people steal bases. You have the bat flip. Let's play. You know, let's – Let's get it, but it's hard to, you know, it's hard. That sport's hard to keep up with basketball and football. I mean, LeBron's movie's coming out this summer. Baseball players play during the summer. I think part of it, too, is the hip-hop, right? We know the summer hip-hop jam, but baseball players in the middle of their season, when basketball players are off in the summer getting in movies, going to the club, branding, while baseball, you're still playing. So, And baseball refused to embrace hip-hop. They're still locked in. Take me out to the ball game. Why are we still singing that song? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's 2021. Let's get a new tune. Let's get a new tune, please. Well, one person. Uh, first, I'll realize, would you ever teach a class or present a class on critical race theory in baseball, bringing those worlds together? Yes. Yeah, so I have a course in the fall at UF called Why Sports Matter. It's a first-year seminar-type course. We call it the Quest Course. So obviously it's going to be interesting. I have all first-year students. Of course, everybody has an interest and passion in sports. And like most Americans, they might think this isn't about LeBron better than Jordan, Wilt better than Kareem. These are subjective conversations. It's looking at how racism are impacting the institution of sports, whether playing, who owns the teams, we're dismissing the myths of black superiority in athletics. That's a bunch of nonsense. We're looking at sexism in sports, all the arguments against, you know, paying women, all these arguments are rooted, you know, when you look at the documents, where these arguments come from, how they continue, and what can you do as a consumer of sports to be more critical. We love sports like everybody else, but you can't go to the game and say, okay, wait a minute, there's problems here. Who owns the teams? You know, why can't 
Division One college basketball women go straight to the pros after one year of college uh, basketball. That's what we're talking about in that course. So I'm really excited. Yes, I know I'm aware that some may come in, who knows, with the tape recorder, who knows what. But it just can't stop my pursuit of truth, brother. I just can't. I can't sit there and say everything is okay. I can't sit there and say, oh, black people are superior athletes. All that is nonsense. I can't sit there and say, you know, uh, women shouldn't play sports or transgender athletes shouldn't compete. That's not my job. You know, I, I just can't do it. I just feel some type of way. You just can't. That's like asking a barber to mess your lineup. That's like asking, you know, asking a construction guy, leave your tools at home and build my house. Wow. This is good stuff, man. You know, David Canton, you've got quite a mountain ahead of you to climb. I look forward to checking you out every step of the way. If there's anything I can do to help as you facilitate these classes, you please call out to me because if you need reinforcements, I just want you to know that uh, people have your back beyond the state of Florida. I hear you, brother. I hear you. Let me just shout out my podcast, if you don't mind. Oh, well, before we do that, I have to... Um, yep. Why don't you shout out your podcast first, and then I'll ask you your last question. Okay. Then I have a podcast since 2017 in the post Colin Kaepernick. It's called The Podcast for Your Punk Ass. Hi. We're on the iTunes and SoundCloud. We do race, sports, politics, and, and what's unique about our platform, my producer, Jerry Beeks, uh, part of a hip-hop group called Bronx Slang, puts out some freestyle rhymes that goes with the content. So they're witty, you can understand him, and uh, it's a unique combination. We've been doing it for the last three, four years. So please check out the podcast for your punk ass. You see, that, that people remember that. <laughs> no one's forgetting that title. Good gracious. Um, and I wanted to ask you, I mean, you, you are someone who teaches about hip-hop. You know it very well. What music are you listening to these days? What's on the soundtrack? You know, that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. You know, it's, and this is interesting because uh, I know the Migos album just came out, Culture 3. And again, as one who teaches hip-hop, the reality is that this is what young people listen to. So you can't go in the classroom, you know, berating, you know, little baby, the baby, right? We, and, and you have to make a distinction. So that's what we call commercial hip-hop. So I know for me, the new person, the guy out of Houston, Toby, man, I kill his last name. He's a, he's Nigerian-American. He's out of Houston, this new young guy. Reminds me of, yes, reminds me of Arrested Development, uh, uh, a unique style. So pretty much right now, it's like I try to listen to commercial, what's underground, the battle rappers, because, you know, hip-hop is constantly evolving. So as an instructor, you know, I can't just stay locked into, you know, the golden era, Karis One, Rakim. You have to come play it forward. So I'm finding that when I spend more time on contemporary, it engages the students. You know what I mean? To find that balance between Cool Herc, Roxanne Shante, and the Cold Crush Brothers with the contemporary Meg Thee Stallion, Cardi B. So I have a wide variety playlist more so in terms of keeping up with the trends. So we have these conversations, you know, as best as, oh, yeah, I've heard of so-and-so. But, again, the students provide me with some underground rappers, independent so it's a good dialogue and exchange. And I teach that course every spring at the University of Florida called The History of Hip Hop. You know, I got to give you a lot of credit because as someone who's been listening to hip hop since I was, you know, old enough to not drink out of a bottle, and I mean a baby bottle, <laughs> um, I, I got to say, like, keeping up with the new stuff is not easy for me. No, it's not. 
It's I'm just being very honest. It's not. I listen to J. Cole. I listen to Joey Badass. Yep. Um, I, I have a tough time with the various little babies and little people. And basically, if you're little, I have some trouble. <laughs> well, I think what helps I have my son, you know, who's, who keeps me up to date and students. So they'll bring up artists when we do like, who are you? Who's your favorite artist? You always have a couple of students with some underground hip hop lyricists. So it's, it's an even exchange, and that's how, if they, and I'll be honest, I'll say, who is so-and-so? I'll go to my Apple iPhone and play it and get an idea. But I hear you because commercial hip-hop is, you know, I'll play the first 20 songs of the day, but uh, I do the best I can, you know. So uh, it just gives me a sense of what they're listening to, deconstructing it, explaining it, and then at the same time I try to expose them to, you know, the stuff we grew up on and how, as you know, the market in hip-hop, the commercial market you know iHeartRadio, formerly clear channel owns over 1200 stations so they have a monopoly you know on what gets played and i can understand why as a rapper you want your one song played every single day from maine to damn you know san diego from maine to southern california 12 times a day because as you know the artists don't make money because again the, the markets change and now the record companies even make money off of your, uh, when you do live performances. So it's a very, technology has changed the game on how, again, black cultural production. One of the things, a natural, a natural resource, how do you control that? Very, very difficult. And that's why some artists go independent. At least you own it, you make more money, you have to work twice as hard because all that glitter is not gold behind those big contracts of Migos and others or the very few that make it in Drake. A lot of them folks are, you know, really struggling. I tell my students, I make more than, more money than a lot of these MCs out here. It's very difficult with technology, and we have a corporate media that doesn't want people thinking. You've got the song running through my head. Maybe we'll play it as we go out. Do you want to be in the business? The business. The ups and downs. <laughs> the <Yep>. business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you want to be in this business? But I want to make jams. Damn, I know I'll slam. All right. But, yeah, David Kane, you've been so generous with your time. I get so much out of speaking with you. We got to do this again, like, super soon, because partly because I want updates for the Battle of Gainesville that I know you're going to be a part of in the months ahead. Let's do that, brother. Let's look at the fall once everything gets settled. And on one, uh, I, I anticipate a story dropping from a public school somewhere in Florida or a small, obviously if you're like a predominantly African-American area in Miami or places like uh, Gainesville or Blue Park, but I know there's going to be stories dropping as soon as September, October hits with, with administrators, parents fired up, ready to go to report and snitch. You know, it's oh. almost like the Cold War all over again. Unbelievable. <laughs> Get ready. All I can tell you is to quote the genius. I've got your back, so you best to got your front. Well said, brother. Dave <laughs> Zyra, my brother from another mother. I appreciate you, brother. I was waiting for you to say that. Best to you and your family. All health, okay? All right, man. Take it easy. All right. Peace to you. All right. Bye-bye. 
We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now I've got some choice words about the latest exposure of the NFL and race norming. Okay, look, you wouldn't have hired Jesse James to stop train robberies. You'd never have turned to Bertie Madoff to clean up Wall Street. And this is why the National Football League's contention that it will be a leading voice to stop the practice of race norming used in the world of neurology and cognitive testing rings so false. The league has benefited immensely from the practice, which has been used to curve the scores of cognitive tests of black players based on the theory that their starting baseline for intelligence is lower than that of other racial groups. With this approach, the league, according to former black players who have sued it, has been able to deny black athletes their share of a $1 billion concussion settlement by effectively arguing that their low cognitive scores are not due to concussions or early onset dementia, but because of the color of their skin. Given this, it makes little sense to trust the NFL to lead the charge in abolishing race norming. The only hope is to name and shame the practice, to expose it, to produce the requisite shock and outrage so many people felt when the story first came to light. Unfortunately, much of the sports media treated these revelations at most as a one-day story, but it's not. Beyond the realm of pro sports, this type of institutionalized racism in medicine has been part of this country since the first enslaved people were brought to American shores. Then it was argued by doctors that black people had a smaller lung capacity than white people and were more likely to ward off some infections and had lower intelligence. All of which, according to the so-called science of the day, made them divinely suited for slavery. Similar arguments have been used historically for denying black people access to education, jobs, and quite famously to integrated sports, meaning competing against whites in the early 20th century. One may feel horrified and even shocked by reports of the NFL using race norming to mete out financial claims and essentially save money, but the NFL is only part of a larger problem. This practice is still very much a part of neurology and cognitive testing to this day. It's practically phrenologist pornography. The root of race norming tells a story in and of itself about the limits of attempting to legislate a cure for racial inequity. In the 1970s, in the aftermath of the black freedom struggle of the previous two decades, race norming as a phrase was first used by President Jimmy Carter's administration in federal job aptitude tests before being implemented to round standardized test scores of black students up to account for cultural biases in the tests as well as disproportionate poverty and underfunded schools. It was also used by his Department of Labor as a way to even the inequities in government contracts, which had always favored white-owned companies. This practice was seen as so commonsensical that it was adopted by Ronald Reagan's administration and was a continual practice until ending it became a right-wing cause celebre. Right-wing talk radio picked it up as a way to depict liberal social engineering. In 1991, conservative columnist George Will called it liberalism's apartheid of compassion. 
He also wrote in his syndicated column that such remedies so obviously poison society. In response to this pressure from the right, President George H.W. Bush outlawed race norming for government contracts and as a Department of Education practice as part of his painfully misnamed 1991 Civil Rights Act. Yet in the worlds of neurology and cognitive testing, the practice and theories of race norming not only survived but thrived, as we can see in the instance of the NFL, where it has been used not to cure racial inequity, but to expand it, more in the tradition of the phrenologists of decades past than anything that has its legacy in the civil rights struggles of the 1960s. There is another echo here of 1960s era reforms that were meant to confront racism, but instead codified it and even became a cudgel used to brutally enshrine it. As studies show, affirmative action programs, and as our guest David Cannon mentioned as well, have, have been far more likely to be used to advance the employment prospects of white women than black people. Hate crime legislation is more likely to be used by prosecutors against people of color than those who commit hate crimes against them. This is why the hope for ending the ugly neurological practice of race norming will not come from NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell leading any kind of a charge against racism. This is a league that has just a handful of black head coaches and executives and no black franchise owners, while 70% of the players are black, with average careers lasting three and a half years. This should be a story we continue to follow and report on to hold the NFL and the medical community's feet to the fire until the practice is altogether abolished. It is a stark reminder that, to paraphrase an old saying, you aren't going to tear down the master's house with the master's tools. Confronting systemic racism will require a rethinking of entire systems baked into the cake of this country, not by codifying racial differences in a manner that will inevitably be used against black advancement when it inevitably falls into racist hands. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now's the time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award. Stand up! How could I not give it to Maddie Groves? She is an Australian swimmer, two-time silver medalist, who has chosen to withdraw from the Olympics as a lesson to, quote, misogynistic perverts. Uh, the silver medalist said her decision to pull out of the Olympic trials should, quote, make them pervs quake in fear. And this is what she wrote. She wrote, let this be a lesson to all misogynistic perverts in sport and their bootlickers. You can no longer exploit young women and girls, body shame or medically gaslight them and then expect them to represent you so that you can earn your annual bonus. Time is up. Thank you so much to everyone for all the support. I've really been overwhelmed by the messages and I just want to thank people so much for taking the time to show they care. I wish I could say I was surprised by the sheer Appalachian trail of stories I've received from people explaining why they understand my decision. 
I considered competing at Olympic trials and making the point later, but I decided I didn't want to potentially take a spot away from someone who was 100% focused on swimming first. It would be a mistake for anyone to reduce my decision to a singular incident. My decision is partly because there's a pandemic on, but mostly it's the culmination of years of witnessing and benefiting from a culture that relies on people ignoring bad behavior to thrive. I need a break. If starting this conversation will save even just one girl from something like being told to lose weight or diet, not going to the Olympics will have been worth it. So that's a very long way of Maddie Grove saying, screw the Olympics, because there are so many sexist pigs in the world of swimming. I don't really want to be making their sport better by doing what I do. Now, you can agree with that or disagree with that or what have you, but I think people standing up, particularly women athletes standing up to what is an institutionalized sexism in their sport, takes a lot of courage. Just stand up award to Maddie Groves. Stand up! The Just Sit Your Ass Down award, sit your ass down. Sit your ass down! Goes to everyone who added to the hype machine of that Ridiculous fight a week ago, a week plus, eight days ago, I guess by the time you're listening to this, between Logan Paul and Floyd Mayweather. I just have to have my, I, I wasn't gonna say anything about this. You know, it, it was a freak show, a carnival act. You know, 44 year old, five foot, <laughs> 155 pound Floyd Mayweather going against a six foot, 190 pound muscle bound steroidal freak i don't know for sure he's using steroids but let me put it this way you look at him without a shirt on logan paul looks like he's being trained by bob baffert and you see him against floyd mayweather and you're just like this is a carnival act a freak show this says and you know and boxing has a lot of roots in carnival acts and freak shows so i don't see it necessarily as being out of step with boxing and if people want to put on these crazy exhibition matches so be it. I remember watching on TV, Manute Bowl versus William Refrigerator Perry. You know, the spectacle of it sometimes draws you in, even if you are a boxing purist, as I do like to consider myself. But what I'm against is the hype machine. Like, fine, they had a carnival fight. Fine, they made some money. But there was so much coverage of this that it actually, on ESPN's Instagram page, they had dozens of photos and... No coverage that Simone Biles, who may be the most incredible athlete on earth, just won her record seventh U.S. gymnastics title. So come on, people. Sit your ass down if you're doing more for the carnival than for the athlete. Sit your ass down. Well, that's all the time we have for the show this week. Thank you so much, David Canton. Thank you so much, my producer, David Tigaboo. It was just a panoply of Davids on this week's show. Uh, if you like the show, do your thing. Go to the algorithm. Go give the show a rating. Go write a review. Do the things that make this show listened to and appreciated. That would be something that would be great. Uh, for everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.